Hey everybody, it's Clothed Men Discuss Bare Naked Ladies. My name is Chris Small. I am wearing an All Blacks t-shirt today and Kmart's finest sweatpants with a blue zip-up hoodie. Uh, hey, and I'm Ephraim Ellis, and for once I am not wearing my PJs because this is the first episode we've recorded after 8 a.m. my time. So it's, we flipped uh, it around. it's a bit later at night for me, so I'm actually wearing real clothes. I'm wearing a maroon t-shirt with some kind of like voyageur or like colonial explorer on it, which is kind of sweet, uh, and a uh, blue and green flannel shirt from J. Crew. It's very soft, uh, and blue jeans. Ooh, very nice. Yeah. You stepped it up way more than I did. I don't even have an excuse. It's like 2 p.m. my time, so it's not even 8 No kidding. I actually, this morning when I was getting dressed, I was like, oh, wait, I'm going to have to describe my outfit for the radio later. I'm going to like, what can I put on that not only, like, we'll paint a good uh, auditory visual picture. For this audio-only podcast. Exactly. Uh, and today we are discussing the Bare Naked Ladies' third studio album, Born on a Pirate Ship. After speaking last week about, I think, what we both agree is a sophomore slump of sorts, I'm really excited to get into this album. It wasn't a very low slump. I thought, like, uh, and again, I had a lot of excitement going in to talk about that record and slowly over the course of the episode became more and more disillusioned. I still say that there's a fantastic EP inside that full-length record. <laughs> It's great as I go back and edit these because I just finished editing our first episode. So those of you who are listening along with us, uh, we're doing this weekly. Hopefully, hopefully I haven't slacked on editing. Uh, But at the end of that Gordon episode, you do say in the outro, uh, here's a spoiler. This is one of my favorite albums by then. And then I guess, yeah, I, I do feel bad that I was killing that illusion live on air as we were going you know what that's kind of the thing so i was also thinking like further on into the season i was like oh you know is this one gonna be my favorite album is this one because even though the bare naked ladies are one of my favorite bands i can't like off the top of my head say like oh this is my favorite this is my least favorite so i'm kind of excited to see over the course of the season like like a like a ranking order kind of evolve definitely it's because so much about what your favorite is is as we're looking at these analytically, it's a really good way to kind of see what indeed does work for us. Because, I mean, we spoke about this in previous episodes. A lot of songs and a lot of albums are tied to certain points in our lives, right? So, and this album in particular for me was the second album I ever bought by them with my own money. So it does hold a place in my heart that way. I bought it in about 2004, so, you know, later when it was released, because, as let's go through a bit of history about this album, uh, Born on a Pirate Ship was originally released March 19th, 1996. Number one song on the Billboard 100 that week, Because You Loved Me by Celine Dion. Shout out to Canada. Number one song of all of 1996, The Macarena, Bayside Boys Mix by Los Del Rio. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. It's only because of my wife's musical taste that I know who sings The Macarena because she has an affinity for 90s music and one-hit wonders. Uh, I know way more about that song than I should. Uh, but a lot everyone was singing and dancing in 1996 I, that song. I just heard a terrible anecdote about that song a couple of days ago where apparently the band U2 was playing uh, a concert somewhere in Spain and someone said, oh, you should play the Macarena. They, they're going to love that here. It's a Spanish song. But it turns out that band, the bass, wait, Bayside? No, Los Del Rio is from a different part of Spain. And everyone in the audience is like, these guys are dummies they don't know this area of the country you're faking it and they got like laughed out of the city or something anyway the macarena (laughs) 
Did you hear this anecdote on Arrival podcast? Are you you two talking to me? Uh, I I actually did. Yes. We're gonna start a podcast beef with them. They don't know yet, but there are no. Oh, I'm podcasts. coming for you, Ackerman. <laughs> I don't care. You have your own podcast network. We're gonna overtake you in the ratings. I swear to God. So while Los Del Rio was dominating the American Billboard charts, the number one song on the Canadian Billboard charts of 1996, You Learn by Alanis Morissette off of Jagged Little Pill. A very good song and a very good album. Mm-hmm. It was pretty, that was released in 95, I believe. So it makes sense that it would be dominating the airwaves for years to come. Um, one of the biggest international exports, Alanis Morissette, I didn't realize until I moved to Australia. I mean, she's huge in, in America as well, but man, like people go crazy for Alanis over here. So, um, so good for her, good for her and her angst. Born on the Pirate Ship specifically, uh, the album reached number 12 in Canada, down from number three for Maybe You Should Drive. Uh, it pe- I don't get that. That's so weird to me. That is so weird. We're really going to get into this because uh, looking back for Maybe You Should Drive, like so many numbers and so many reviews are just completely against what I think should be, especially compared with this album now. Um, I, I think that we're going to be uh, agreeing on a lot of these points because I just kind of like scanned down your research notes and I was like, really? It was only that much critically? I, I don't know, compared to the other? I don't know. I'm not sure I'm uh, going along with this. Yeah. Uh, it peaked at 111 uh, in the US though, which was up from 175 for Maybe You Should Drive. Uh, and that being said, it did reach gold status, that is born on a pirate ship in America by 2000. A lot of that success uh, later on were from the two singles in the album, and we're going to get into those. But the two singles were The Old Apartment and Shoebox. The Old Apartment was the band's first breakthrough into the US, making the Billboard 100 and the mainstream top 40 and i think deservedly so it's a, it's a great I was about song to say that i think that that makes a ton of sense to me which I, I suppose we can get into later when we uh get into the track by track but mm-hmm. but yeah I'm, I'm happy about that you know what i mean like i think that that is a deservedly it, it deserved to be a single and it definitely deserved the success that it had in america at the time before we get into the track by track we should talk about a few uh key points about this album it was the first recorded as a four piece although not the last that's some foreshadowing for later albums we've spoiled that plot twist already we have we have and i imagine anyone who's listening to this is a fan of the band so you know they know what we're talking about and that's because as we spoke about on maybe you should drive andy creakin left the band shortly after that album was recorded oh may he rest in peace may he rest in peace that's right yeah, uh, the curse now, of this right? podcast he's, he's dead no he's not dead no okay that's uh, good we may have killed him uh <laughs> no no Kevin Hearn became the keyboardist of the Bare Naked Ladies. He wasn't credited on this album. He wasn't involved in the recording process, but he did join them on the 1995 tour prior to the release of the album and was thanked in the liner notes for, quote unquote, injecting new spirit into the band. And that's that's pretty sweet. I think that's very, very sweet. And sorry, and remind me, sorry, did he just join them on tour or did he do like session stuff? Did he record any keys on this record? Or No, apparently he okay. was pretty much, they had finished recording by the time he came in uh yeah he started just as their touring keyboardist and yeah just full-on so this was recorded entirely as a four-piece 
I wouldn't be able to tell you if they did have session musicians, but I do know that Kevin Hearn was not involved. Was not involved in the recording? Well, okay. Well, he has plenty of other records later on there. Yeah, exactly. He, he would be a stalwart uh, going forward, a mainstay going forward. And speaking of the recording process, Ed and Steven returned to writing together on this album. Uh, Maybe You Should Drive was a very solo endeavor. Apparently, they wrote their tracks separately, the ones that they sang on, and then they came together at the end. But this one, they returned to what they did best in Gordon. And I really think that that shows. I really think that, as we talked about, Maybe You Should Drive, I don't know if you agree or not, it was very, it was very disjointed. It felt, like you said, I think enough for an EP, but there was a lot of filler. And I think that this album really proves that they're they're better together yeah uh, like like as i said at the end of the last episode like i think maybe you should drive again was four great songs and eight like kind of songs as opposed to this one which just in general the band feels it just feels like a lot more confident this album like it feels like they kind of know more what what they're doing and what they it feels like they know more of the image that they want to put forth as a band and they know more about kind of what they want their aesthetic to be. And I think it's just a lot more of an interesting album than Maybe You Should Drive. I agree with you completely there, but the critics didn't, because this album did not do well critically at all. Rolling Stone and All Music, which were at that time, you know, before the internet, they, they pretty much had the market on and had the final say on what was popular and what was good in music, gave the album, both publications, two out of five stars, which is really harsh. I am shook. I am very confused at that. That's very, very strange to me. I know. It deserves so much more, especially just, I listened to this album all week in preparation for recording, and man, I didn't skip a single track, and I talked about that on Gordon. I don't usually skip tracks when I'm listening to, to albums, but some songs are slogs to get through. There was really not, that there weren't any in this album, with the exception of maybe one, which we'll get to later, but. No, I was just going to say that there's a couple songs that maybe I would skip on this one, but again, compared to the four to eight ratio that I felt on the last record, this has got a significantly larger number of uh, like Stone Cold classics and deep cuts that I would keep returning to. How does this album do, before we get into it, on the Mountain Goat scale? On the mountain, mm, um, it has yet another mm, track three kind of feeling for me. If you guys didn't, if you guys don't remember from four episodes ago, uh, there's a songwriter I really, really like who has a theory that the first four tracks on any album are probably the most important because those are the ones that people are probably going to actually listen to. Uh, this one is for me is only batting two out of four for me. Interesting. Well, I really want to get into that. I want to get into that and hear why. But before I do, uh, one last note about this album. The artwork. Remember when albums had artwork that you could pick up and you could look at and you could examine? This album's artwork, the common misconception is that the kid on the album cover is Jim Cregan because it's just a redheaded kid with freckles, much like their beloved bass player. It is not. It's just a child lookalike, I guess, and it was just a happy coincidence. I never heard that maybe that was Jim Cregan when I was like first listening to this CD, but that makes a lot of sense looking at the picture of that kid. Something else I learned about the cover art for this record within the past week. So I'm like, I'm in the car with my wife, Megan, and she was very, very kind in letting me put on this record twice in a row because I was trying to prepare for this episode. But she also likes this band. When she picked up my phone to start playing the record, she goes like, oh, uh, what, what one's this one? Oh, Born on a Pirate Ship? 
oh, yeah, I, I get it. I see what they're doing. And I said, wait, what do you mean? She's like, oh, the kid has his fingers in his mouth. Don't you know what that is? And I said, I, no, I, I have no idea what that is. She's like, okay, so put your fingers in your mouth and say the name of this album. Anyway, there's this whole thing where it, there's a rhyme where it says, I was born on a pirate ship, but if you put your fingers in your mouth like that, it's supposed to make it sound like you're saying, I was born on a pile of shit. Oh. And then it's funny, because little kids like swearing, and it's funny, and they said the word shit, and it's like, ah, I made you say shit. Yeah. I made you say underwear, similar thing. They bring that up later, a couple albums later. They are known for their witty banter. Yeah, so that is, I did not know that that was a weird, like, childhood, like, joke game reference until literally, like, a week ago. <laughs> Neither did I. Look at that. Learn something new. I like that. There we go. Oh, this is the full rep. She has just walked into my studio and passed me a note. Said apparently it's, uh, I was born on a pirate ship with a bunch of apples. Oh. Which then turns into, I feel all all of our listeners can figure out what that's supposed to turn into. We're not going to say that because the FCC will shut us down. Exactly. You were going to bleep what I said earlier, right? It was obvious from my... I've got my shock DJ Sam board at the standby, so there's going to be a lot of boings and springs and bleeps, so don't worry about it. Bah, 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 bah. So with all of that out of the way, let's get into the track listing. Track one kicks off Stomach versus Heart. That's what you get when you confuse your stomach with your heart. That's what you get when you confuse your stomach with your heart. I'm really curious to hear what you think about uh, this opener. Also- uh, a song I like to think of as Stomach v. Heart, Dawn of Justice. Can't wait till the Zach, Zack Snyder director's cut comes out of this song. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's going to be 86 hours long. So uh, originally when I was writing notes about this song, my, the first thing I wrote is, I don't know what this song is about. And then I immediately looked up what the song was about. And it's like, oh, it, it's it's literally just about stress eating. That's cool. Which which brings me to something that I like about a lot of the songs on this record. They're, they're not just uh, ugh, like on Maybe You Should Drive. It's not just a bunch of like, I'm a sad person in a sad relationship and I want to talk about that kind of songs. There's a lot more like narrative specificity in a lot of the tracks on this album. So even if it is a love song, it's a love song about a specific story. And I like that a lot. So yeah, so this song, I really like it because it's about a specific thing. And it's about an interesting thing that not a lot of people write songs about. It's definitely, it's a fun opener. It's very catchy. It's a really strong opening. Yeah, right right from the first riff. Absolutely. That riff right off the bat kind of sets the tone and it grabs your attention. Um, Also, I got a note here. Props for using the words gastrointestinal and cardiovascular as lyrics. Hell yeah. That is good as hell. Good wordplay, good lyricism, and very a few other bands could probably get away with that because it just rolls off the tongue when uh, Stephen Page does it, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, like already they just I, it feel just feels more refined and confident mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it also when he says those lyrics and he's just kind of goes into that groove. There's a lot to be said about Ed Robertson as a rapper, but I think that Stephen Page has some pretty good rhymes as well. He's got a good flow. He's not as good a freestyler, though, which I feel like... Because we, like, we've been to a couple of Barney Lady shows together. Do you, like, do you remember any of Stephen Page trying to do... They sometimes do like the weird hip-hop interludes, and Ed is usually very, very good at freestyling very slowly. Like His flow is not very fast-paced when he's doing it freestyle, but like he's still pretty pretty witty and quick on his feet, and I always felt like Stephen was kind of like just like reaching during the freestyle but like i can't freestyle like props that he's able to do it at all but and even for as slow as ed is it's like in 
the ratio it's like for every 32 bars that ed spits it's like page spits maybe four four exactly so this song's about stress eating and the next song is about farming and so much more um, so much more and yet again oh, i love a good story song we are talking about straw hat and dirty old hank A song that the first couple of times I listened to when I first bought the album just assumed it was about farming. And then I listened to the lyrics even deeper. I realized it's about way more. And then I did research into the song and I realized it's about way, way more. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Again, I love this song because it's a really good story song. It's about so it's it's about a creepy ass uh, lonely farmer who falls in love with and stalks a, a singer, presumably probably to the point of murder or at least attempted murder by the end of the song. And it was inspired by Anne Murray, who I think personally told the band a really horrible story about a, a stalker that she had in some run-ins with this lunatic. But it was just such an evocative story that they decided to write a song about it. Yeah, it blew my mind when I found out about that. Because, yeah, absolutely. Farmer stalking a famous celebrity. So you listen to the lyrics, it comes out that way. But, yeah, based on the true story of Robert Keeling, who was a Saskatchewan wheat farmer who became obsessed with popular Canadian singer Anne Murray. Apparently, she had a restraining order against him and around 30 court appearances between 1980 and 1981. The one thing that really struck me is that there are two lyrics right off the bat that are based directly on Anne Murray songs. So you've got Spread My Tiny Wings and Fly Away is based on Snowbird, which is probably the biggest hit Anne Murray ever had, at least internationally, definitely. I was about to say, which I did not catch that reference until I was researching for this uh, episode, but like once you notice that it's that phrase from that insanely popular, like I'm not going to be able to unhear that reference now. We ruined Snowbird. We've ruined Snowbird for oh. <laughs> the dozens of people listening to this podcast. <laughs> the dozens of people that are following us at this very moment. Uh, the other lyric is, I cried a tear, you wiped it dry, I put you up, up on a pedestal so high, which is based on you needed me. And again, I'm just, you know, have to revoke my Canadian license. I did not know that was an Anne Murray song. And I loved that lyric thinking that uh, the Bare Naked Ladies did that. But just, yeah, very, very dark song. And yeah, like you said, the very last line of the third verse implies that this farmer succeeds in killing her. But thank goodness that that wasn't the real story. And Anne Murray is still very much alive. No, very, very much. Absolutely. Yeah. And this song uh, reminded me of there's like at least two good about a stalker songs in the Canadian pop camp from that time period because there's a Sarah McLaughlin song called Possession which I think is the only Sarah McLaughlin song I know and like but it's also about a creepy ass stalker um, and that song took a lot of courage because I think she was writing about her own stalker uh, at least the at least the American ladies had like a level of separation when writing this character like ugh. which I also feel kind of fulfills the stalker's uh prophecy or or motivation you know it's like i don't want anything to do with you but i'm gonna write a song about you and then he the, the stalker hears that going ha ha mission accomplished oh jeez. um do you have any ideas about what exactly the title means other than presumably old dirty hank is the the name of this creepy ass farmer but like is it just that he has a straw hat is there another character whose name is straw hat is this pop singer supposed to be named straw hat in the narrative i don't know was 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 ann murray known as straw hat back in the 80s 
No, I, I took it very literal that the farmer was wearing a star, straw hat and perhaps Dirty Old Hank is the name of his scarecrow who's out in the wheat fields. You know what? I, I've i decided, no, it's absolutely Anne Murray's nickname was Straw Hat. Surely that's what this song means. If we're ever fortunate enough to be in a room with Anne Murray, we're just going to call it out. Hey, Straw Hat! And if she turns around... Hey, Straw Hat! <laughs> mission accomplished. We don't know if that indeed is her nickname, uh, but we do know the next name of the song because it's called I Know. Oh, that was hokey, but I, I stand by it. We're working. You can't, they can't all be home runs or transitions. Listen, sometimes you just, you bat 467, that's still pretty good. I know why I like you. It's because of your clothing and your haircut and because you're racist so if you couldn't tell from my uh, glowing reviews of those first two tracks and my saying that i thought that the first four tracks are uh two out of four uh so these next two i'm i don't know okay i know it's very musically it's very catchy but i have no idea what this song is about and i i wanted to try to figure out what it was about before doing this episode and no one on the internet seems to have any theories no one over on genius.com has any idea what this song is about and it's like i don't know it's just a bit silly for my taste it feels like ed's just throwing words at a wall yeah i could i could definitely see that there's definitely not an overarching narrative in the story what i've got is that he's giving clues in three verses to who he's talking about and they add up to hitler a dog and jesus which is probably the only song that i know of to group those three people slash things together so good on him i i like it it's silly in a way that isn't a jokey joke song which i know that you are loath to uh you are, you're not a big fan of based on what we were talking about in gordon i would disagree i think that the third song is still quite strong and caught my attention but agree to disagree sorry you just blew my mind the entire song is just him riddle me thising for the answer's a dog, Jesus, and Hitler? He's giving clues, man. It's like, I, I know why why these things happen, why I like you, why you bite me, why I... You'll never catch me, Batman. I am Ed Robertson. <laughs> Riddle me this. I know why you like me. I don't know why he chose those particular people slash animal, but it's fun enough that I appreciate it. Circumcision is a lyric, so... It's got that going for it, I guess. And then the outro is just them saying Jack over and over again. Yeah, again, I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious now to go into the fourth track, though, uh, with you. This is where it ends. This is where it ends. This is where it ends. Call the police and call the press, but please dear God, don't tell my friends. This is where it ends. This is where it ends because you said third and fourth, not a big fan. So uh, tell me your thoughts on that one. This is where it ends. It's fine. Cool, let's move on. It's fine. (laughs) The song is fine. I don't know. It felt like this is where it ends is kind of like the closest to a maybe you should drive style. It's just a song about a relationship ending. It's not super catchy. Like, again, it's it's good. It's fine. But like, I don't know. So you think it's about a relationship ending? I I think so. Yeah, okay, cool. Nice. Or... Oh, wait, no, this is the depression song, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. Like, that's the thing. It could be a better relationship. It's it's up to the eye of the, uh, it's up to the eye of the beholder. I guess the ear of the listener is better. I really like this song. I think that 
it, the way that I interpreted it anyway, it's about mental health. It's very upbeat in terms of the song tempo and the way that it's sung, but it's really deep in terms of just the melancholic sadness of the lyrics. You know, he's talking about, I have faith in the Prozac nation. Uh, you play doctor, but I've lost patience. That's a very good twist of phrase. Very much so. I do like a good twist of phrase, and that's one of the best. Yeah, and I do. Sorry, now that I'm reflecting, I'm like, oh, no, this is a pretty good song. Yeah, because also the lyric, the call the police and call the press and please, dear God, don't call my friends. Yeah. That's a really, that's a very evocative line about mental illness, too, because it's like, oh, yeah, sure, the authorities can know, but, you know, it's too embarrassing for the people that are close to me. Yeah, absolutely. To know about it which is yeah i take it back it's a good song and then just i don't want to take the responsibility of proving its importance sounds like you just he kind of wants to suffer in silence doesn't want to advocate or be you know publicize what the protagonist is going through i just think that there's a lot the more i listen to it the more you know being in lockdown now uh in australia for god i hope when this airs we're gonna be out but right now as of this recording we've been in severe lockdown for 114 days so it leaves oh, you alone fingers crossed dude Jeez. it leaves you alone with your thoughts and i can man i'm telling you it's uh mental health is a really serious thing and i think that it's a really mm-hmm. yeah the more i listen to this song the more i really really do like it and i think that i think it's one of their again we talked about on gordon you point to their songs about them not being a jokey band if you listen to this a couple Mm -hmm. of times i think it's got a very good case of showing that they're deep songwriters yeah so i don't take back everything i said about my original impression of the song like two seconds ago but because i originally said like oh another song about a relationship you're absolutely right and i knew that it wasn't but the thing is i find the song is i don't listen to it enough nor do i enjoy the song enough musically that i actually wrote any notes about it before going into the episode okay which meant i just had my off the cuff immediate remembrance of it which was not at all what the song was about so no actually upon deeper reflection very very strong song lyrically but it just doesn't catch me like musically so yeah yeah i think that makes sense i mean final answer my opinion of this song so next song, track five, When I Fall. I wish I could step from this scaffold on the soft green pasture shopping halls. Oh, bed with my family and my pastor and my grandfather who's dead. Look straight in the so this song was inspired by a window washer that Stephen Page saw high atop a building while he was in downtown Toronto. And then he began writing and spinning a narrative from the perspective of this window washer looking through the office building windows and seeing the people inside. I, I really like this song. What do you think? Uh, this is maybe one of my favorite Band Naked Lady songs. Really? Nice. I adore this song with all of my heart. It is absolutely beautiful. Again, it speaks to me because, again, I like the specificity of it. Like, I like that it's a song about a specific character, while at the same time being about that general feeling of wanting to, like, escape the life that you're in and, like, escape the ordinary. And the, like, would you call it the the chorus or the bridge? Like, the... Uh, with my family and my pastor and my... Like, was that the... Would you call that the chorus, the bridge? I feel like it's the chorus and it expands a bit, like, later on. Yeah. 
specifically that phrase about who he's gonna meet in this like Elysium kind of area and the song in general but specifically that phrase has this like really evocative like dreamlike imagery that I really really like it really evokes the like waking up from a really nice dream kind of feeling yeah it's just a really beautiful song it is it's really well sung by Robertson I think the images that it evokes I agree with you it's it's absolutely beautiful I did read online someone's opinion it's not mine but I'm curious what you think someone pontificated that this is a window washer who is having a crisis of faith. There's a few religious allegories thrown around, my hands clenched the squeegee, a secular rosary, contemplating whether they should just drop when I fall is actually him thinking whether or not he should take his own life. Uh, Agree? Disagree? I I don't think so, but I'm curious to see what you think. Uh, I'm not sure I buy it. Yeah. Like, there's some compelling points that you could make for that being the reading of it, but I'm not sure it's the, like official canon correct reading i think you could write a good personal essay about why that that's a valid i think that's a valid thesis if you want to write an english paper about the song dissecting it as a poem but like it's not how i feel about it listen man if you have a strong enough opinion about a movie a tv show a song you can convince anyone i mean i once talked to a guy who said that the original battlestar galactica was an analogy for the franco-prussian war there's a lot of theories out there uh in actuality or is that something you just pulled off of the top of your head no that no in actuality there was someone who tried to that convince. actually happened to you yes that was a real thing where were you when this happened and who is this person and where are they now i was at the black canary coffee shop in uh young and dundas which uh, for those of you who okay. don't live in toronto it's probably the biggest comic shop in toronto uh it acts as a coffee shop slash just you know all things pop culture i hope it's still there i haven't visited in four years but yeah you know it's one of those places where anyone who has an opinion is going to gather and try to convince you of it and that's a that's a story for another podcast for another time. But yeah, I didn't believe his analogy and I don't believe this random internet's person's analogy about when I fall. So I think you should feel good about yourself about that. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I told you before I'm I'm easily impressionable and this time I said no. <laughs> no, no, go. I disagree. Good. Stand up for yourself and your opinions, Chris. Exactly. I feel good about myself with that, but the narrator in the next song does not feel good about himself. We go into track six, I live with it every day. On August 1st, 1981, I cycled to Scott's house with the BB gun. We were almost 12, but we looked 13. He had baby blue eyes that I shot him between. A song about a childhood incident where one kid shoots another with a BB gun. I've said this again, I like that. This is a bit of a through line for me of this record is that there's a lot of songs that are like about a specific story or a specific character where a thing happens to them, like a window washer, kid who shoots somebody with a BB gun, a person who stress eats a lot, farmer, stalker guy, but that they're story songs about specific things that evoke more general themes like this is a song about this kid but it's also just about like the concept of guilt in general and i really like that yeah i completely agree and i think that the break or the musical break in the middle of it where the song slows down completely and it almost becomes this weird emotional ballad it catches you the first time you hear it but it's great those harmonies are great yeah they really are oh man again like that this isn't a song that before i was doing a re-listen for this episode i could have like sung for you off the top of my head because it's not like really high up in my songs that are my favorites in the canon but yeah those harmonies are Mm -hmm. nuts they really are. Yeah. I do agree with you about like it just being an overall song about guilt and the things that we do carry with ourselves. That's a really good interpretation of it. 
I'm, I'm surprised personally that this song isn't higher up there for you because you say that you enjoy a good yarn that's being spun. And this one's pretty good about, you know, kid just traveling across the neighborhood to shoot his friend in between the eyes, hopefully accidentally. I assumed it was accidental. I assumed that they were going to like go out and shoot some cans or something and then just like it went off or whatever. Um, no, but it, like it doesn't stick with me because just like with this is where it ends like musically, eh, just doesn't hit me very much like from the music standpoint. And um, as much as I'm talking about lyrics a lot in this podcast i'm really more of a songs will stick with me more if i like the way it sounds rather than the lyrical content so yeah really interesting lyrically musically that's all right yeah then we move on to the old apartment The first single off this album, the album that was their initial breakthrough in the U.S., and just overall a great song. What are your thoughts? On the old department, it's absolutely fantastic. So good. I'm not surprised that this is one of the ones that kind of like broke through into the American market. Like it's a very well-constructed alternative rock song. And yet again, it's about a specific story. And I like the twist towards the end where it's, oh, he is still with this person. He's literally just here to like be sad about a part of his life that he's moved on from, not the relationship itself. Because it starts off sounding like a, an angry breakup song, but it's not. And it's great. It's a very fun twist on some of the songs that we've talked about before in previous albums where it's the song that says very jovial, but it's actually very dark. And like you just talked about, this song starts where you think, oh, this person is breaking into their ex's apartment and is about to terrorize them. But no, it turns out, like you said, they're just visiting because at the end, yes, I found We Don't Live Here Anymore. We bought an old house on the Danforth, which is the most Toronto lyric I've ever heard until Drake came along. I was about to say, and it's got a specific Toronto reference, so of course I'm going to love this song. Yeah, and then it ends with him saying, I'm happy again. It's a beautiful song. It's one that will always make me tear up every show that I go uh, to see there because it's just, it's so evocative of a time in your life. Who doesn't remember their first apartment? Who doesn't remember the first place that they lived with their spouse or the first place that they had when they were starting out? It brings back so many good feelings and it's just a very, very sweet song. I mean, them ending on I want them back, like they want those memories back. They've moved on. And they're presumably in a better place, but who can't relate to wanting to go back sometime to a simpler time in, in a person's life? It, God, it's just such a gorgeous song. Jason Priestley, fellow Canadian, star of Beverly Hills 90210, recorded the music video, uh, directed the music video for this song, and also... Really? Yes. And also, huh. uh, one of the first TV appearances by the Bare Naked Ladies in America, they were the band at the Peach Pit and played this song on an episode of 90210. What? That's wild. Yeah. I did not know that. All right. Jason Priestley, just a big fan, is like, hey, I'm going to use my star power, because who knows how long it'll last, good call, to direct the Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> good, good, good person, uh, and a good song all around. Yeah. Oh, and also, again, I think it is a bold choice for the record in general to put the two lead singles as the end of the two sides of the record. Yeah, true. Yeah, because Old Apartment is was the lead single, and it's the last track on side A, and Shoebox was the second single, and it's the last track on side B. Like that's a that's an interesting sequencing choice, which I respect. If I maybe don't agree with it, I think maybe Old Apartment should have been first track on side B. But that's just how I would press a record but i'm not i'm not uh, michael philip Ouija. so what are you gonna do 
what young boy doesn't dream of, of being a dream Michael of Philip someday Louisa. becoming you know posters of Michael Philip Luigi on a young boy's wall being like one day <laughs> so you were talking about track three and four about kind of being nothing tracks to you mm-hmm. or just ones that you're like eh. Mm. Uh, this next one was probably the most nothing track to me on this album which is call me calmly I do not disagree Disagree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't. It, it, it's it's nice. It's a weird one because it's very nothing to me. Like I really don't care about thinking too much about the meaning of it. It's just it's it's a kind of a nothing song. But I will catch myself sometimes like humming or singing the chorus because it's just incredibly catchy. So I'll give it that. Oh. Uh, but aside from that, that's that's really all I have to say about this track. What do you what do you think? Yeah, it's just kind of a nothing, and I'm very confused as to why it's the first. Tr- like why like why it's the lead off track on side B because again we're still in the era where like most people would have been buying this on cassette so I don't really imagine myself getting into the car and saying oh I'm gonna put on the new bare naked ladies cassette and oh I'm gonna listen to side B first it has that as the first song yeah I don't know I don't get it it's inoffensive enough to not be like uh, I can't bother hitting fast forward because who wants to line up the next track <laughs> but uh, yeah not enough to <laughs> maybe that's why old old Steve Page was like no one's gonna listen to my song call me calmly. <laughs> Unless I put it as the first song on side B. And then he looked at the poster in the studio saying, what do you think, Michael Phillips? Yeah. <laughs> After Calmly, Call Me Calmly, we go into Break Your Heart. My heart will be A much better song. A much, much better song. Completely agree. Yeah. And speaking of breaking, uh, that warble after Just Stop Wasting My Time, that <laughs> lyric where... <laughs> so good! Exactly. Oh. It's just the the instrument stop, it's just him, and oh my god, it's that, uh, Stephen Page, that is. It's like wailing it's, breakdown is so good. There's so much raw emotion mm-hmm. in there. Uh, this song, plus the outro to me to Lovers in a Dangerous Time, the cover that they do, mm-hmm. are probably the strongest examples of Stephen Page's power as a lead singer. That's at least my opinion, but every time I think about someone singing the hell out of a BNL track, it's this one and Lovers in a Dangerous Time yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah. For anybody that has ever let me drive a car that they're in uh, will know that in music I like I like a good saxophone in my rock music and there's a lot of like very subtle sax in the background of this song which I did not notice until the past couple weeks we're listening for this episode and it's great and I love it mm-hmm. uh, this is probably the biggest example of sad boy page yeah. I guess on this yeah. album I'd but, say but uh, Sad Boy Page is back, but being more interesting because the speaker flips halfway through this song. Because like the oh, first yeah. half, the first half is presumably the boyfriend. Because I think I think the tenses change anyway. But the first half of the song is the boyfriend saying like, "Oh, you know, like I should have broken up with you earlier, but I didn't want to like, I didn't want to break your heart." That sort of thing. And then halfway through the song, it says, "And then you say." And then the monologue switches, and it's her saying like, "Are you freaking kidding me? I'm like." You think I'm going to go to pieces over this? You're not uh, really that hot stuff, bud. And that's where the stop wasting my timeline comes in. It's great. You just, subsequently how I blew your mind a few <laughs> ago, you just blew my mind because Reciprocal. I... 
God, I have not. Yep, there's just a whole bunch of brain matter on both of our ends. Mm-hmm. Let's pick up the pieces. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, I've listened to this song countless times and i've never picked up on that yeah no no so would i i had to like i i was like it was again it was just because i was reading lyrics in prep for this episode i was like wait a minute no that's great yeah i'm gonna have to what a treat Mm -hmm. for the next time i go and uh, listen to this song and ideally for our listeners as well because ideally unless we're saying something new and interesting but yeah no so it's it's like the same kind of like it's a song about a breakup and a sad boy stephen page but it's got an interesting flip there which i uh, again think speaks to how the band has evolved since the last record 100 percent. and so we've talked about a lot about ed and steve writing the songs together we then go to spider in my room voice of an angel i think i am always excited when there's a jim cregan lead vocal track lady's record i think he has a really great voice yeah he really does they've all got pretty good voices even tyler stewart sometimes when he gets to bust out some songs live in uh sets i think he i think he's he's decent not the best singer uh, by the band probably but you know i think he's fun yeah i think he's a fun guy he's kind of got that jim belushi party animal thing going on i mean that as a in a positive way as much as comparing anyone to jim belushi can be considered a positive i also like this track because it's again also about a weird thing because it's about like arachnophobia and superstitions which is kind of cool yeah absolutely uh we go from spider in my room very upbeat song to same thing what does it mean to wake out of a dream someone else's shorts this song probably beautiful beautiful i love this song it's so good and it probably has my favorite wordplay of any other bare naked lady song which is huge to say i know but when the lyric uh, struck by lightning there must be something in my veins my weathered veins i actually think that that is probably my favorite turn of phrase that in any bare naked lady song i think it's so good and it's very very clever i was just gonna say i like the fantastic four reference but oh that's pretty good too that last issue was cool yeah, it's just, it's so, oh, it's very, very good. It's a beautiful song. Uh, the way that, you know, he just tries to rush in as many lyrics as he can near the end of the chorus, and it really, really works. Talking about old men, talking about the Fantastic Four, talking about lightning hitting, it's it's really, really good. And it's definitely a down-tempo song near the end of the album, but I think it really fits here, actually. I think it fits at the end of the album. If you were to structure it out, there really isn't another place you could put this song, and I think it works. And uh, at least through these first three records, all of my favorite Ed Robertson songs have been the weirdly melancholy, starting with an acoustic guitar kind of songs, like Same Thing, When I Fall, and Am I the Only One are like three of my favorite Bare Naked Lady songs. They're all like uh, Ed being kind of playing a like a melancholy acoustic driving home in the rain kind of song. Oh, Steven, so you think you're the only sad boy in the band. Give me my guitar. Speaking of, we're in the home stretch for this album. Just three more tracks. Just a Toy comes next. What do you what do you think of this song? This feels like like a platonic ideal of a Stephen Page song to me. And I'm just I'm just looking at your notes. It's not actually about that, is it? Because it says confirmed by the band. You're nodding at me through Zoom. No. Yes. No. Yes. Really. Yes. So how about uh, you, how... I take back all of my? Okay, I didn't know 
this next piece of trivia that Chris is going to blow all of your minds with. But to me, it again just sounds like a, oh, I'm Stephen Page. I'm sad about the end of a relationship and not being treated fairly by my girlfriend. Eh. And my note just said, it feels like a more refined version of Intermittently or A. Okay. Which are not songs I'm a huge fan of. But yeah, I was just kind of like, eh, whatever. It's a, it's a whatever song. But if the next nugget of truth you're about to lay on us is true, I take everything back. I thought the exact same thing up until three hours ago when I finished my notes, actually. So I did find this. I had no idea what the song was about either until someone posted that and they posted the audio as well. The Bare Naked Ladies were on a podcast several years ago where they talked about this song and they basically said it is from the perspective of a puppet made by Geppetto that is not Pinocchio. So the idea being Geppetto is toiling over all of these these wooden boys, I guess. He tells them the same thing to each of them. You'll be a real boy. I love you. And then they're just put on the shelf when Pinocchio comes along. So it's just Geppetto what? being a dick and absentee father. What? Yeah. Oh, man. So again, I thought this... I thought this song had something more in common with Intermittently, but maybe it has something more in common with Great Provider? Yeah, In that case? Like, wow. Okay, cool. Again, mind blown. Also, important thing that may have gotten lost to the shovel in that story that you just told. The Bare Naked Ladies have been on a podcast before? Yes. I will send you the link. I will send you the link. No, 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 no. no, I don't know know if you know where I'm going with this. Guys, if you're listening, come on the podcast. Oh, that's a much better idea. Please. Please. Like, Ed, you live on the Danforth. I can bring my mic. Like, I'll come to your house. It'll be fine. Come on the podcast, guys. We'll talk to you. We just need just need a little bit of your time. Even if you just want to come on the podcast to tell us that we're getting everything wrong, I mean, that's fine. We'll still, we'll, we'll exactly. take it. Exactly. Yell us Think of the exposure, guys. Yes, think about the exposure. You can finally break through from the Toronto scene. What's that? Who do we have on the other line? It's Stephen Page. All of our dreams have come true. Oh, mercy. <laughs> We then move to the second last track of this album and the second written and sung by Jim Cregan, In the Drink. I'm in the drink for love. Now you talked about him, about him having the voice of an angel, so share your thoughts on this one. Uh, oh, Chris, we, we talked about Gordon already. I think you know what my thoughts on this song are. It's back. <laughs> Chris. The jazz is back. The jazz is back in a big way. The jazz is back in a big way, and it's great. It is beautiful. Uh, yeah, I really, really like this song. Jim Cregan has the voice of an angel, um, and I like that he gets to do kind of like a bit of a crooner kind of thing on this song. And specifically, the opening is gorgeous before it breaks into the jazzy stuff. And I totally didn't recognize which song this was upon like my re-listen of this <laughs> until that break. And I was like, oh, what is this beautiful atmospheric kind of like post-punk kind of opening to this song and then suddenly boom the jazz hits you and everything's great. once the jazz comes in it's uh, you know that everything's gonna be okay <laughs> i do yeah I, I definitely like the song you're right i think it was them getting back to those elements on gordon and it's really nice and we're gonna get to the last song in just a second but this song would have been the closer of the album i'm surprised it's not I am very surprised that this is not the closer, and I'm also very surprised that the closer of this record is the closer of this record, because, again, why are you putting your second single as the last track? I know. It's bizarre. It's a weird choice. It is. It really is, and I think you're right. I think this works very well as a closer, way more than Shoebox, because Shoebox is just, especially because like you've gone through these quite a few songs thematically 
that are a bit darker, they're a bit more broody, that are, it's almost like you taper off from the beginning of the album, which has that big instrumental intro, and now you're kind of petering, but then you go right back into that up-tempo for the last track. It's very odd. So, yeah, no, I, I really like it in the drink. It's nice that he gets two tracks on this album. I think that's nice. Which happens a lot more, uh, Jim getting two songs on a record happens a lot more often after the plot twist happens that we keep alluding to. <laughs> Gotta spread that workload around. Like a decade later, but yeah. So, In the Drink wasn't the last song of the album. Shoebox was... Shoebox, the second single of of Lie Shoebox of Lie Eyes. That's right. Lie Eyes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't agree that it should be the closer, but I really like this song. I like this song too. Um, speaking to the idea that this should not maybe be the closer on the record, I think it needs more more chorus. I think it ends a bit too soon. I really was expecting there to be another chorus on my last listen to it, and then the song just ends. Yeah, it's true. And then the whole album ends. So I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's an intentional choice that it kind of just the whole record ends really abruptly but uh, I'm not I don't like that choice yeah I think it was they probably did not have this pegged as a closer because as we alluded to before this was added last minute because it was featured on the first Friends soundtrack so that's what the song was actually written and recorded for so I think when that show, I guess I never watched Friends, actually. That is a pop culture phenomenon that passed me. I was more of a Seinfeld person growing up. Uh, I was the opposite. I don't know. Like, it was a very groundbreaking alt comedy kind of thing. And my dad was more into, like, the traditional sitcom thing. So we just never watched it. Like, yeah, so I never watched The Simpsons. I never watched Seinfeld. Okay. So in 95, 96, was Friends kind of, was it just starting out? Or was it still pretty much, like, firmly entrenched at that stage? Was it, was it... It was like just starting out, but it broke out immediately as like a cultural touchstone. It became very, very popular very, very quickly. Yeah, because what I'm what I'm thinking is maybe when they were recording this song, they didn't realize how big Friends would be, and then they just kind of went because again, first soundtrack, maybe like oh, I guess we got to tack it on now as they're as they're making the new album. So well, apparently Matt LeBlanc and Lisa Kudrow were supposed to be in the video. Really? Okay. I think you're right about the timeline here because I think by the time they went to do the video, like they were too big to do this. Canadian all rock bands music video and they got somebody else to do it looking up actually as you said that uh, yes they did get someone else to do it that man would go on to be well he always was but Chris Hardwick podcasting's Chris Hardwick podcasting's Chris Hardwick podcast empire founder and uh, notoriously shitty boyfriend Chris Hardwick not not a fan would have rather had Matt LeBlanc and Lisa Kudrow but they they were too big at that time absolutely yeah it's a good song. The way that I interpret the lyrics are it's basically about a relationship that one person's older than the other, but they're pretty much lying about it. Or there, there's some deceit going on, hence why they're putting this note written by their partner in the shoebox of lies. That's kind of my interpretation of the lyrics. What are yours? Um, that it's a really catchy pop song. I didn't actually listen to it that closely. <laughs> nice. There you go. <laughs> Well, that... um, which is probably the most honest piece of art criticism I've said on this podcast thus far. Like I've allu alluded to this more politely earlier in this episode, but like generally when I listen to a record, I'm more of a music guy. Like the arrangement and the instrumentation and the melody is more what like hits me and has a song stay with me. Yeah. So what's been one of the great things about doing the show with you so far is that I've been like looking a lot closer at lyrics of a band that I really, really like. And that's really, really cool. Yeah. Just didn't do it on this 
song, and now I feel dumb that I didn't. So, great. You know what? It's good. You brought that Matt LeBlanc, Lisa Kudrow tidbit, and I think the story behind this song is a lot more interesting than what the actual song is. I agree. It's just a very catchy pop song. Probably not the best album closer, but it's pretty good. I remember Disc One, the first greatest hits album of BNL, has this kind of firmly entrenched near the end, but not the last track. Like, there's maybe like three afterwards, and I think that's a really good place for it, but... It's hard because you can tell that this really wasn't recorded with the rest of the album because I'm thinking about where I would put it in the album, but it doesn't really fit thematically. Even if you put it somewhere else, I really can't see it fitting. So good song. Just it really does make sense that it was just kind of tacked on at the end being like, let's get that sweet NBC money. TV money has been pretty good for the Barrington Ladies. Yeah, it wouldn't be the last time that they had a song featured on a sitcom. No, certainly not. That is Born on a Pirate Ship, the third album by the Bare Naked Ladies. Ephraim, final thoughts on this album? This is maybe... Ah, I, I feel worried saying this so early on in this season of this podcast, but this might be my favorite record of theirs. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it's just really solid across the board. I know that uh, in the track by track, I was saying some critical things about some of the tracks. And the thing is like, not all of my favorite songs are on this record. It's mostly When I Fall, and to a lesser extent, The Old Apartment, although The Old Apartment is probably in more like top 10 songs, and yeah. like maybe not even in the top five. But When I Fall is absolutely like second or third favorite Bare Naked Lady songs. But despite the fact that not, that not a lot of my favorite songs of theirs are on this record, it just really holds together as a top to bottom listening experience. Mm -hmm. And maybe just personally because it was the first... I think it was the first album of theirs that I bought with my own money, probably in like 2000 or 2001. So like at that point, Maroon had already come out, but for some reason I bought this one. Yeah, it's just got a really special place in my heart. And yeah, I think it, I think maybe it's my favorite one. Nice. Yeah. I'm kind of similar. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's definitely in my top five. And it's, it's tough to do that because, again, as we're re-exploring every album, there are going to be ones that I'm going to be listening to going, oh, God, I, this is so much better. This is my favorite album now. And then I'll go to a next one saying, this is probably my favorite. But this is mm -hmm. this one's always had a special place in my heart. And I think that it probably would be, I think I said Gordon was in my top three. This would definitely be in my top five. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I really, I really like this album. Similar to the reasons that you had, you know, this was probably the second album of theirs that I bought, again, with my own money. Uh, was listening to it a lot in high school. I had a very long commute to Scarborough from North York, so there was a lot of time for CD listening. So I was about to say, yeah, you have to have that CD booklet for your Discman. Absolutely. Yep. And I had the square one, so I could put in the album art on top, and I thought I was so cool. Oh, man, I wish I was... See, when I was in grade 11, I was still buying cassettes because they were $10 cheaper than CDs. That is a very smart way to purchase music. And I also like, and I had a Walkman, and everybody looked like looked at me like I was on Mars because everybody else had already moved on to Discman's. Other specific fi final thoughts. As I've said several times, I really like the amount of specific narrative in this record. There's a lot of characters in the songs on this album, and I really, really like that. And also with the song breakdown, there's 14 songs. Three of them are Eds and two of them are Jims. I like, uh, I like that ratio. In general, yeah, it just feels like a lot more of a refined and confident record than Maybe You Should Drive, which confuses me from all the reviews. From a sales point and from... Yeah, just a critical standpoint. It's very, very weird, but it'll be interesting because next week, Stunt, the fourth album by Bare Naked Ladies, is going to smash every single record that they have had in the previous three albums. There's some foreshadowing, both critically and commercially. So we're going to be talking about that next week. That is definitely a stay tuned. 
Do I have time for one more story? You do. So today, I don't know how I forgot this part of the story, but I have another addendum to the story I told in episode one about me embarrassing myself in front of Getty Lee at an art auction in 2005. I want this to be a recurring bit for every episode. Ephraim embarrasses himself in front of Canadian legends. No, uh, actually, this is going to end with me not embarrassing myself, or at least I hope so. Uh, So you know who else was at that party that I had completely forgotten was also there? Uh, The man himself, Stephen Page, was at that art auction. And I cannot remember, I, I, I don't know why that part of the story did not pop into my brain when I was recording a Bare Naked Ladies podcast while telling this anecdote. Um, but specifically, I remember walking in and me and, because it was me and uh, another actress named Devin Weigel, who's fantastic. I think, she, I think she's in LA now. But we were on this, we were on a TV show called Falcon Beach together in the early 2000s and we went to this uh, art auction. But I don't even think our pilot had aired yet, so no one knew who we were. And we just felt very, like, I felt very out of place there because just everyone was gathered around Stephen Page because he was the rock star there. But since I loved the band so much, I was like, oh, I definitely have to, go, have to go say hi to, can I, will you, will you come with me when I go say hi to Stephen Page? Because I'm, I'm, I'm really, really nervous. And she was a very, very kind person and stood behind me <laughs> while I went up and said, uh, hi, hi, uh, Mr. Page. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm E from Alice. I'm, I'm an actor and I, I just, I really like your band. And I'm pretty sure he just went, oh yeah. Like, and that was our whole conversation. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And then I left. But the thing is, I absolutely, like, I think that's what I said, but I do not remember exactly what I said, which I hope means I probably didn't embarrass myself because I am the type of person that if I did embarrass myself, I would absolutely be able to relive that memory and picture perfect clarity for the rest of my life. You didn't confuse him with another member of his band. So that's that's an improvement already, already from the yeah, rest. Yeah, absolutely. So again, Steve, we... Like, we had a good time meeting that one time in 2005. If you want to chat again, come on the pod, man. I was really holding out hope that you were going to say that Straw Hat herself, Anne Murray, was also at that art auction. No, no, that would be... Ah, that just really would have tied this this episode together, Chris. Damn it. She could have been. Maybe you didn't see her. Let's just pretend that she was and that she responds to Straw Hat. If anyone sees Anne Murray in the next coming weeks for some reason, just, um, you know, refer to her as Straw Hat as her friends do. Mm-hmm. Ephraim, where can people find you on social media? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ephraim Ellis. But again, I'm not really doing a lot of content these days, so I wouldn't get your hopes up too high. Again, more realistically, you can find me in Toronto on the street, but wearing a mask and keeping my distance and being So if you see Ephraim wearing a mask, keeping his distance on the street, say hi, but say it loudly. And from across the street, yeah, social distancing yeah. is important, people. We're all in this together. Take it from someone who has been in lockdown for months now. Social distancing is very important. You can find me not on the street, as I just alluded to. You can find me on Twitter at csmall201 and Instagram at csmalltraveler. Right now, I'm just tweeting about UFC and pro wrestling because that's all I can tweet about because the world is a huge garbage fire and I don't really want to pay attention to it. I'd rather escape into fake violence and real violence. One of the reasons I'm not on Twitter a lot these days. Until next time, when we talk about stunt, I'm Chris small and i'm from ellis and we've, we've been, been clothed, clothed the whole time, time. nailed it